and welcome to This is a Token with Alex Monroe, the podcast that celebrates all things jewellery. I've spent half a lifetime designing and making jewellery, but what really interests me is what it means to other people. This is a podcast where we ask our guests about the jewellery they cherish most of all. We'll explore the moving, fascinating and often surprising stories connected to each piece and those emotional bonds that we just can't do without. My guest today is Emily Dean. Emily is a writer, super fabulous, award-winning, hugely successful broadcaster and podcaster. Emily's podcast is called Walking the Dog and it's one of my favourites, so give it a listen. Her radio show with Frank Skinner is brilliant too, all sorts of awards there. So um, once again, this feels a bit like the time when I went for a run with Paula Radcliffe. Um, Out of my depth. But um, Emily's book is called Everybody Died So I Got a Dog which I'm really looking forward to talking about. Um, And I'm a bit nervous about it because it's a very emotional book and I think there are one or two things we might have in common. Anyway, more about that soon. But for now, Emily's brought along some amazing pieces of jewellery to talk about. We're at my London Bridge HQ. We have special guest, uh, Connie's little Chihuahua Blueberry and Connie here to help. So together with the bin men, the delivery men and the dogs and me backing up, this should be um, super smooth. So Emily Dean, Thank you very, very much for being my guest on This Is A Token. really kind of you to come along. Can I, do... I just say I'm so happy because I called Blueberry's name and she came. My dog's not great at that. He just <laughs> glares at me when I say his name. We have two dogs. We used to have three. So my dear, she dear... She might at some point try and jump on your own. Yeah, she's likely to jump on I'll tell you what I can get at this stage <laughs> of my life. <laughs> my lovely Jessie, because I've always had a border collie. I love border collies. And my lovely Jessie died a while ago, which was like, you know, the most catastrophic thing that could have happened to me in the world. But we have an, an Italian rescue dog called Pepe. And when you call her name, she just looks at you like you're an idiot. <laughs> she looks at you and goes, what do you want me to do, you idiot? Like, you know, and you go, come on, come here. And she's like, oh, get lost. And then she just lies down again. She looks at the tree as if to say, well, you want me to get up for this little thing? Isn't it? Is that what you're talking about? Yes, my dog looks at me as if I'm a really unpleasant member of the paparazzi and he's Kate Moss. <laughs> he gives me that kind of look. Like I'm outside his house asking for a quote. It's like, I'm feeding you. Oh, I support you. You're a kept man. Ray's a good looking dog though. Yeah. I think I'd be a little bit arrogant if I had him. Do you know, that's the thing he's never had to try. But he's got the supermodel problem. Yeah. His whole life he's walked into rooms and everyone said, oh my God, you're here. Yeah, I totally get that. So his life is everyone, faces lighting up going, oh, you do his little tree or something. And then you follow one afterwards and you get completely ignored. That's interesting with dogs, though. That thing about... It forces me to accept, having such an incredibly good-looking dog, I have to accept that I'm the lady in waiting. A woman said to me the other day on the street, what beautiful hair, just for 10 seconds. (laughs) I thought, what if she's talking about me? And then she bent down, and I swear, it was almost triumphant, the look my dog gave me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. How do you like them apples? Brilliant. Me and Connie, we just love dogs and we've had some brilliant podcasts. So, for example, um, Olivia Coleman came with how many? 
It was chaos. Two dogs, and we, <laughs> we had, had three. Dogs. We had three. That doesn't surprise me that she has dogs because she seems to have such an incredibly lovely energy. Yeah. I knew she'd be a dog person. You know, a really good lesson to anyone who says, oh, I want to be famous. It's shit because she can't walk the dog in the local park. She can't come round because she gets stopped every time and everyone pulls out their phones and it's like, leave me alone, I'm just walking the dog. So it's right level of fame. <laughs> when I do the podcast, and it is weird because sometimes you'll have people on and you think, well, how's this going to go? Mm. Because it's exactly, as you said, it's someone really well known. Mm. I think I frightened them off because I'm just like, look, I've got a job to do. Go away. Don't approach us. But it's interesting how some people get approached, especially with comics. I think people tend to approach comics a lot because there's that sense of you're my mate. Mm. And mm. I had Rob Beckett on my podcast and he's got that real sort of sense of my mate down the pub, I think, mm. to him. And then some people who I would expect everyone to approach, like Ricky Gervais, because of the area he lives in, I think everyone knows him. There's almost that thing of okay leave him to it but it's it is tricky isn't it because you're right dog walks are very that's your time isn't it yeah that's your private time well so what i love what having a dog has given me one thing is that it gives me structure to my day so because i get down in the dump sometimes you have to get out of bed you have to take the dog for a walk it's like it's not about you anymore so that's been really good for me secondly when i feel lonely i go out for a dog walk and i say hello to the other dog because i know the other dog walkers so it gives you human contact and, it, and you're part of the community. And I think once someone like Frank or someone hadn't been seen walking his dog for a couple of days and people go, oh, is Frank all right? You know, so it really gives you that sense of community and that people mm. sort of notice that you're there and you say, oh, which I love. And then particularly with Jessie, she was just so calm that when I was anxious, she was not like my she knew she, If you said a swear word, she would freak out. Like she could, even if you're very calm, you just have a little like, oh. Jessie yeah. was my signal picker up. For me, I think what was so, I don't know, incredible was that I'd never had pets. My whole life, I just hadn't grown up in a dog family. Mm. I grew up in this bohemian family full of weirdos. Mm. And it was a family without structure. It was fabulous. And it was exciting. And my parents were both performers. And there were loads of sort of journalists and philosophers and MP, all these sort of, you know. Creatives. Yeah, and yeah. intelligentsia, yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, and it was, but it meant that what we didn't have, we had very few sort of rules and boundaries. And my sister and I would, we'd say, oh, what's for breakfast? I mean, my parents never got up for breakfast. They were just, you know. <laughs> and we'd have canapes from the night before. I remember a girl at school saying, why have you got black on your teeth? And it was caviar. <laughs> but we weren't wealthy. We didn't have sort of a ton of money to shield us. Yeah. If they got a cheque, they'd say, oh, go and buy that first edition of that, you know. Charles Dickens or whatever so it was very sort of feast or famine in terms of but it was incredible and I I see it as a benign chaos I see it as but it did mean that I always wanted a dog and I now realize that I think the reason I wanted a dog was it dogs force you to stay dogs provide structure and reliability and um dogs mean permanence and we never had that routine and all those things that that you that you didn't have were you parented or did your parents just sort of you were just there and they were there and so long as you weren't dead you were sort of they were doing a good job kind of thing you know, <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean yeah, exactly yeah it's a good question I think it felt less like a family my father who was very intellectual probably the most terrifyingly bright person I'd ever met in my whole life and someone said something about family loyalty and he called family blind loyalty to people whose genes you share mm. which sounds slightly 
cold than it wasn't. It was just how he thought in that sort of slightly intellectual abstract way. He would look at it and think, yeah. oh, no, this makes no sense. So we were more like a travelling troupe. We mm. were more like a circus almost. So we'd all turn up and do our part. Mm. And as you say... As long as everyone did their bit, it was fine. There was the idea that there were no boundaries. We were exposed to everything. That was just normal. So my mum would say, say, why is granny being horrible to me? I've told you because she's on amphetamines, darling. Mm. There was that sense of, oh, okay, we're just part of the gang. You and your sister, were you able Mm. to work out your moral compasses, you know, and and how you dealt with relationships and stuff? Ironically, my dad did a late night arts chat show called Late Night Lineup in the 60s and that was what he did for a living was have pe- these incredible people like Lawrence Van Der Post and Malcolm Muggeridge and they'd be discussing the concept of morality yeah. and how to yeah. behave and, and, yeah. and then at home you, yeah. you, you were getting no sort no. of Which is interesting. simple parenting guidelines yeah. boundaries fundamentally they weren't amoral and they didn't behave badly but I think it was just that family meant something different to them than to most people that I knew. And I think they probably, to them, thought the idea of family was just a bit parochial and suburban almost. The idea that you'd eat at the same time every day or you'd give your kids breakfast, you know, that just felt a bit bourgeois. My sister and I must have been about 12, I think. My sister was a little older and we got back from school one day and there were notes being put through the door from my dad saying, I've gone to live in New Zealand. So he just left. So my mum was like, oh, my God, I've got six pounds in my pockets. And, of course, we were living this lifestyle. We were at a private school and all this. So I didn't speak to him for, like, five years. He kind of disappeared. We would occasionally get postcards. That took a lot to forgive because the stuff that I would joke about, the sort of being rude to people at dinner parties and being rude about their art, you know, Mm. all that stuff, my sister and I, our coping mechanism was, it was a joke. It was funny. It didn't feel funny when that happened. You know, it felt like this, is. even then I thought this is going to impact me. It was almost like I knew, I thought this is really going to affect my view of men. I knew it when I was that age. It was odd and it did. And it's taken a lot of unravelling. But my sister was less sort of scarred by it for some reason, I think, because she was older. And um, I suppose, you know, nature and nature, you you, you can have two identical situations. Yeah. Because there's a difference in nature that will affect the two different people. So I'm one of five kids. I was the luckiest one of the five because my sister, Nikki, used to get me breakfast and make me bath and put clothes on me. And she used to tell me that I was gorgeous and clever and lovely. And so I got... Oh, Nikki. And my brother, Roddy, would beat up anyone that, that gave me any jit because he was a bit of a thug. So I kind of had my parents there, you know. So I was really lucky. But I think bigger and different effects on everyone else because I was just so lucky to be so talented and loved. Nikki was your... Because that was my sister, exactly. My sister, Rachel. She was sort of the person... If something happened at school or I fell over, it was her that yeah. I would call for yeah. because she was two years older than me. <clears throat> It was almost as if she knew, probably like your sister. My sister gave me space to be a bit naughtier because was that the same for you? Absolutely. And so um, I I find it difficult when I was just, you know, reading about you and reading around and I think I can't even really think about the thought of not having my brother and sister around. You know, my dad died and my mum was 90. I'm I'm a bit scared to allow those thoughts in my head to consider that because I don't know what life would be like without... um, So I can't imagine what you've been through. 
Although my wife, her um, sister died of cancer and, and her father left, so they've got a very similar really? story. So I don't, you know, Denise had a bit of a struggle with that one. I think with her, my sister, I felt because, you know, my dad was one of those people who's very impulsive, probably similar to your parents in that, you know, they were adults who'd make very impulsive decisions. And then those ripples would just be felt where you think, mm. oh my God, we're going to New Zealand, we're going to Australia. So we mm. moved around. A hell of a lot when we were kids which made us quite good ambassadors we were very good you know literally like a show it was like we're doing mm. a show in australia now you know mm. so we moved around so often we would go to sort of i can't remember how many schools it was like I'd probably, by the time i'd got to about seven or eight and we finally settled in highgate we came out here so probably been to at least six or seven different schools maybe eight nine loads and so we'd been to so many different schools and, and had so many different lives almost at that point but my sister was my anchor mm, she was yeah. like my northern star it was well, just well, like you need my rock. that lifestyle you need that and, anchor that rock and you would see i had a pink suitcase and my sister had a yellow one and they were sort of our traveling around the world with all stickers you know with cindy doll stickers and things instead of what we thought was sort of travel correspondent stickers like these we put mm. cindy and i would see that yellow suitcase Next to the pink suitcase, it was really symbolic. And I think, oh, it's okay, I'm safe. As long as mm. those suitcases are, are sort of next to each other. So she became symbolic, as you say. I mean, also we would laugh at it. And I always compare it to, it's like watching a really a movie that's kind of so bad it's good. Mm. If you're with a friend, it's hilarious. If you're on your own, it's just a bit depressing. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's yeah, yeah. And I think that when you're having a sort of, we would laugh at the blackness of it. And my sister would still send me these emails because there was like, I'm sure you have towards your parents, Alex. There's a tremendous love and affection. It's all you know. But they were eccentric. They weren't like other parents. And my sister would send me these emails saying, oh, guess what they've done now? What only in our family, you know? Mm. And mm. Um, that felt really tough when that when that was suddenly disconnected it was like oh my god I'm at this it's just me here and I think as well as the sort of you know the fallout of it just being a traumatic thing to lose a sibling I think it was that my fellow witness had gone yeah you know that was the other thing it was like but I think with my sister it was um it was the shock of it she had my niece Mimi who was 10 and then she had just had her second baby she had 10 years between them because it had taken a while to get pregnant second time so alberti alberta was one she hadn't just turned one actually at that point i think she was 11 and, and nearly um one it was three weeks before she turned one and then my sister it, it was one of those oh i feel fluey and i just kept saying i remember i was going to the comedy awards i remember i think i was wearing that choker which we'll talk about mm. weirdly and i said oh what do you think it is and it just happened so quickly it was i've got cancer what do you mean three weeks later she was she was dead because she was diagnosed so um, late on. There was very little they could do, and it was horrible. I mean, people kept saying, "Oh, you didn't have time," and I thought, "I don't know if time would have helped." I don't know. You know, the loss was just awful. So when stuff like that happens, it obviously, as anyone knows who's been through anything traumatic, it's um. And I say that because people would say often they would say, "Oh, it's not like what you've been through." It's not like what you've been through. And I'd say, yeah, but I don't have the monopoly on grief. It's just any sort of pain is pain. And I thought I'd dealt with it, but I hadn't. I thought I had. I would sort of say, oh, it's very sad. It was almost like I'd do this face and then I would go home and I would almost present an idea of 
grief. It was like my public face of mm. grief. And you don't realise at the time that you're not processing it, but I really didn't because we were so close. It's, it's like you were saying, it was it was a loss of her, it was a loss of everything about her. But it was it was like my parent had died as well. It was like she was everything. Mm. There is no sort of coming to terms with things or getting over things. Mm. And I love that line um, in... Um, who is it? Simon and Garfunkel, where, where he says, hello, darkness, my old friend. Who comes oh, yeah. again. And so I kind of feel like that sometimes where you can grow perhaps not to be so afraid of those feelings yeah. and you're a little bit more used to them and they're, they're part of you. And so you can sort of embrace them and be it rather yeah. than deny it or push it away or want to cure it or all these other things. So that's my comfort is that I, I feel like I can, with some of those dark things, I can, um, can recognise them and go, you know, you're part of me. Yes, I think that's a really good way of putting it. I school them my kitchen floor parties. I'd say, oh, here, we're going to have one of these again, aren't we? Because I would literally just, like, I'd have to lie down. I couldn't work that out at the time. And it is it is literally about wanting to disappear, I think, isn't it? Yeah. It's a really symbolic yeah. thing. It's like, I don't want to be here. Mm. But you're right. You just have to say, oh, you're back, are you? Okay, you're a bit of an annoying house guest. Yeah. I hope you go soon. But... <laughs> You know what? You're here. I can't get rid of you. And then you just ride it out. And that, and exactly like you're saying. So you are like funny and you're jolly and, you know, so in most of your life you're sort of blustering through, making everyone smile. And that's obviously part of you as well. And it's funny, isn't it, how we have us onions have those different layers. <laughs> but you, might, you obviously have to sort of, you have to be able to turn it on. Yeah. And sometimes it must be quite enjoyable to be able to, to know that you can turn on your yeah your jolliness and have a jolly time, like on your, all the chats and fun and laughter on the radio show and or on a podcast. That's really lovely. It's so um, interesting you say that because I think that's a really good point that, oddly, I think doing the radio show, because I did a radio show with Frank Skinner and it was only three hours every Saturday, but I felt doing that and doing the podcast, which came later, it was an element of fake it till you make it, you know, and I'm yeah. really not a big believer in Piers Morgan man up, but what I do think is that just... Do something that makes you feel good that day. And being in a room with Frank Skinner, being hilarious for three hours, you cannot not laugh. And there's something about the simple act of laughing, which is, again brings us back to dogs. I've been crying. I've been sitting there sobbing. And my dog will come over and I start laughing at his face yeah. because it's so ridiculous. And then my mood is instantly yeah. transformed. I'm sure yeah. you've had both yeah. experienced that. And so I think you're absolutely right. I think the social elements of my job and being surrounded by funny people and you do see the the sort of black comedy in it you know that I was I remember when I, I laughed at something and it was a real that moment when I thought okay I might I might be okay and it was when I'd been to the grave and uh, my childhood best friend Jane Goldman is a screenwriter and she's married mm. to Jonathan Ross and, mm. and they're, they're kids of my god kids and they were incredible they were Sort of like my surrogate family, really. Mm. And I would ring them and I remember, again, both brilliant sense of humour, as you can imagine, both very funny people. And it was that darkness. You just laugh at something dark. 
because there is a lot of funny stuff when people die, which is awful, but it's true. And I, the guy who was showing us around Highgate Cemetery, where um, he was very sweet and he was trying, but he was showing us around and he was saying, yeah, we get a lot of, um, I don't want to name drop, but we get a lot of people in here. <laughs> <laughs> Oh saying, my god! But then he named probably was funny a person because he was saying someone like we got um, Litvinenko, the Russian spy, who I think there was something about him being radioactive. I was like, I don't know how I feel about this. But he was named up. I was, but then he said we got Lucian Freud over there, uh, George Michael's mother. George Michael's mother. I mean, I don't want to be rude. I love this guy. Lucian Freud, yes. George Michael's <laughs> mother, bless her, God love her. That's not going to make me hand over the cash, really. <laughs> so, but it was just things like that, you That's think. so funny. This is funny. I think to appreciate the happy days, it's awful, but it's the tax. You know, that you have to have the sad days in order to think, oh, this is good. I don't feel like that today. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, I think there is a, I'm very pretentious now, but there is a great quote from, uh, is it Henry IV? Part is how speaks. Right. So, all the like year it. we're playing holidays. To sport would be as tedious as to work, which I've remembered somehow. From there. Yeah. <laughs> but I yeah. think that sort of exactly, you, you know, if everything's balanced, and I think I think it's important to to welcome and value. I think happiness is something that's good to aspire to. Yes, I think if you didn't like when people say, "Oh, I just want to be happy," that doesn't always mean I just always want to be happy. It's just I quite like to aspire to a life that I'm happy with. But I know that I'm still going to have sad also, days. Also, and, yeah, you know, it's not different. Happy means different. Yes. Yeah. So well, that might mean is contentment and, and all the rest of other things. So. Yeah. so Emily, you've got some jewellery, but also you've got pictures of other bits of jewellery. We're yeah. going to put these photos on the website. Shall we start by looking at, just talking about this next, which I love. Well, do you want to describe it? You're probably better at describing it than me. This is the Vivian Westwood pearl choker. It's not real pearl. It's costume jewellery, obviously. To me, it's quite a sort of iconic design, really, isn't it? It's an orb surrounded by pearls, strands. What are these, Alex? Is that just Diamante or rhinestones or whatever? I, I guess I guess it's kind of Diamante. It's, it's the classic, isn't it? It's, the, it? it's a sort of like the planet orb where you've got the Saturn's ring around the orb yeah. that has a cross on it. It's like the classic Vivian Westwood logo, all splattered with lovely sparklies. To me, it very much sums up the 90s because mm. you'd wear that with your bustier corset with cherubs on it. And it's glamazons and it's supermodels and it was all that birth of that unapologetic femininity, you know, mm. and the huge sort of Cindy Crawford hair and all that stuff. Happy days. Uh, yeah. They were such good times. Well, I suppose it was interesting because, yeah, it was all about excess and being voluptuous and all that. So there's a fun aspect to that piece of jewellery and why I love it because mm. it it's memory lane. It reminds me mm. of my youth and it reminds me of, I think I actually got that. I was gifted that, but I was going to a premiere, an event, and they were nice enough to gift it to me, that piece of costume jewellery at Vivian Westwood. And then it took on a, an odd significance though, which is to do with my late sister. Mm. And she had borrowed it. She was going to a party. This is maybe sort of a year and a half, two years before she died. She was going to a party. She said, oh, can I borrow your uh, Westwood choker? And I said, yeah, sure. Like a lot of siblings, we had that relationship where she was always very direct and honest. Can I borrow it? I went for the uh, better to uh, <laughs> have to apologise. Uh, oh. Better to nick it and then yeah. apologise afterwards. She also said, yes, fine. About six months later, I thought, where's that choker? I needed it for something. And uh, she said, I don't have it. I said, you do have it. She said, I don't. I turned my house over. She turned her house. It became a bit choker gate. Yeah. Like it was that. And you know what? 
I decided, possibly, I don't know why, but for the first time ever in my life, it's quite unprecedented to let it slide. I let it go. And if ever you want a lesson for why you shouldn't sweat the small stuff over things like possessions, because then, of course, about a year after that, she died, as I've explained, very suddenly my sister died. And I didn't really think about the choker again. And then I would say this was about three months after she died. I was clearing out some stuff. I, it took me a while to clear out stuff. And I looked through all my drawers and I finally found the choker in my stuff. I'd had it all along. Mm. I just had missed it the first time mm. around. My sister hadn't had it. I'd had it. And so I felt a couple of things. I thought, firstly, she was right. And I felt really sad that I couldn't call her and mm. say, I'm really sorry that I gave you a hard time over that choker because I was wrong. Mm. And I also felt it was interesting finding it after a few months when I realised she was the last person to have worn it. And having been annoyed at her, I was really thrilled that she was the last person to have worn it mm. because it suddenly felt of her and it had a connection with her. And I, what's odd about losing a sibling is that you don't have a lot of mementos and keepsakes yeah. because with kids and stuff, you know, when it's your parents, you're sort of conscious, you're constantly being handed down stuff, but your siblings are just there. You don't think they're going to disappear one yeah. day. So that has taken on such a significance whenever I wore it. I think my sister was the last person to wear it and... Oh my God, it makes me even cry thinking about when I put it on. I th- it makes me think of her. I feel like it's, it's a weird thing. I feel very connected to it. I love that. So we've had that quite a lot of times. It's almost like, um, what are they called in Harry Potter? That is it like the Horcrux or something? I can't, you know, particularly when someone's died and you don't know much of them, that an object can scoop you magically to, to just bring it all back and suddenly you get the emotions and the feelings and everything like that. Someone's persistent at the door. If someone's at the door. I can just see the tip of a red baseball cap. Yeah. I'm worried it's Make America Great Again. Just so you... Donald Trump's going to buy some jewellery. Oh, it's fine. Anyway, um, so anyway, so that... Do you wear it now? I do. I wore it... I, I tell you when I last wore it, there is a picture of me, which I will call up online, with me wearing it with Frank Skinner at the Brit Awards, the one before lockdown. Yes. And it's interesting. I always loved it, but it's taken on... Um, such significance for me now because she wore it and I suppose what it symbolizes to me is that idea of just you never know what's going to happen and it's never worth falling out with someone over a thing that's that's what the worst thing about having kids is when they grow up you realize what an arse you were to make such a fuss over Mm. things that just didn't really matter and it all goes so quickly, and, and you're just yeah, left with it. vice versa as well. I've definitely been an ass. Well, yeah. I don't think you have. When the opportunity's gone to, yeah. to to do it right, you just think, you know, why did I do that? It's very unlike me to not take things to 11, and I didn't for once. Good for you. Well, possibly the only time um, I'm ever worthy of that. <laughs> <laughs> because, I mean, I normally do. I, I exaggerate. I sort of tend to be a bit of a drama queen and a bit hysterical about stuff like that. And I don't know why I didn't, but I just let it go. And actually, and what's lovely is my niece, my late sister's daughter, Mimi, she has worn the choker as well. It's like our family yes, heirloom. Yeah. <laughs> really How yeah. old is she now? She's 20 and she looks so stunning in it. And yeah, I love it. It's going to be handed you down. Guys, you and your sister, when I was doing my stuff, I was thinking, God, you're pretty good looking. Uh, well, she was always, the, like I say, she was always, she was one of those people who was so beautiful, but 
had no idea, which of course made her even more, you know, yeah. attractive. And it's interesting with my niece Mimi, who's very beautiful physically, but my sister was always very, um, when she was young, she's very ahead of her time now. People would say, oh, isn't she beautiful? You know, these big blue eyes. And her, and my sister would say, oh, I don't want her to attach that as being mm-hmm. important. And mm. It happens much more now, you know, this mm. idea, you know, with young girls. Sort of, and she was really ahead of her time with that. Like, I remember saying, well, I want to take Mimi to see this thing, 27 Dresses, some bridesmaid rock. And mm. she went, no, I'm not having to watch that bullshit. Mm. And I went, well, what do you mean? It's harmless. Yeah. Because then it was the time. It was like, you know, I was probably smoking a silk cut at the time and yeah. you know, saying something misogynistic and ladder, you know. And she said... I don't want to poison her with that. She said she'll watch that and somewhere in her head there'll be this idea that she has to live her life in abeyance as a bridesmaid. That's some terrible thing waiting to be claimed by a man. And so all that I think about and she was such an incredible special person. I was so lucky to have known her which is why I'm really glad I didn't give a shit about the show. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Nice. Okay. (laughs) Next. Maybe like one day we can have a like um, a pieces of jewellery hall of fame that should be like ultimate Mm. museum of iconic bits of jewellery that are really important. I definitely have that Vivian Westford necklace in it. That is just such an iconic piece because it said something about a really important thing about the time, the era, what was going on, how we felt, how we interacted. I mean, that's just classic. And I love Vivian Westford. So... Right, now we're going to go to your E. So what, what we've got here is we've got a long chain. It's a necklace chain with an E on it. It's very simple. An E, and at the end of the bottom of the foot of the E is a cute sparkly stone, which I can't tell from the picture, but I it's imagine real. it's a diamond. It's real. Great. Ooh. 99% of my jewellery, you'd be right in assuming that it was it was all cubic <laughs> and none of it was real. I mean, this is a real diamond. You have an E on at the moment as well. I do. So you've got, you've got, you've got, Let me talk you through again. the ease. So the jewellery in question, that's a goldie with a diamond on it. Mm. And again, it's associated with memories. Mm. So my best friend, Jane Goldman, who I've known since I was 11, mm. and we've been friends all this time. And she always remembered we met because my godmother, who was actually our family neighbour, was a pop star in the sort of 70s and 80s. She was called Lindsay DePaul. She was very glamorous. <gasps> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she, had, she had like a little mole or a little kind She of... had a beauty Oh screen. my God. Have you ever seen, we'll have to Google yeah. a picture, we'll yeah. show you. Yeah, I'm not that. on my phone. You carry on. You carry on, Emily. So she was very. such a fan girl in cars. She was stuck. She was very glamorous. I think she was from the Eurovision Song Contest she entered. They came sort of second or something, but she was an incredible. Um, sort of role model in some ways because without realising it she was kind of a feminist like she was in the music business and back then in the 70s women were quite very abused and exploited and Lindsay was well known for being really tough and there was a singer called Gilbert O'Sullivan who got famously ripped off by his manager who your dad will know but he got really upset because his manager ripped him off and Lindsay sniffed that guy and and walked away and anyway she bought this huge house. And she, I remember her saying to me when I was very young, she went, I bought this house for myself, Emmy, so no man can tell me what to do in it. Mm. <laughs> and I was really young. Cool. 
I, I mean, there's know. a million photos of her. You have to look around. Oh, she I was brilliant. Yeah. She's, a bit more, she's a bit more sort of Charlie's Angels than yeah. I, I, I've yeah, got she was. lined up Claire Grogan, which is which purely because she's a heart from a woman. So she had a song called Won't Somebody Dance With Me, which was like, and then she had Sugar Me, but she also dated a lot of high profile men. Yeah. But she'd sort of split up with them. She would date a Ringo Starr and Dudley Moore and people like that. Yeah. I remember I'd go into her house and she was always so glamorous. She'd go to uh, the Emmanuel's and make all her clothes, Princess Diana's designer, and she'd she jewelry. Mean, they're half old enough. That's why I can't. You're, 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 this is when you were five years old. Yeah, right? exactly. I get it. Yeah. Well, I was quite. I was about seven or something. <laughs> okay, cool. But she That's would good. say, "Oh, do you want to wear that? I I wore that at Studio Fifty Four and all this oh, kind of stuff." Anyway, she'd have these amazing dinners with all these incredible people. Then she started dating when I was young an actor called James Coburn. He was like an American action hero, like The Great Escape, Magnificent Seven. So she started dating him, and they were the most glamorous people ever. Like, whenever he'd walk in a room, I just remember thinking, oh, my God, I've never met anyone so glamorous. Yeah. Yeah. And he was a sort of action hero, and he'd talk about, you know, my friend Steve, and then I said that was Steve McQueen and things. And he worked with Bruce Lee a lot to get yeah. martial arts for movies. So, in fact, Chris Evans bought all his Ferraris. He had a collection of Ferraris, James. Wow. So, anyway, they would go to LA a lot, Lindsay and James, because yeah. James had a house over there. And they came back. And because he's James Coburn, he didn't quite get, I don't think, what was suitable presents for her. Kids of our age at a North London <laughs> primary school. Tobarone, right? <laughs> well, you would think, but James Coburn decided to come back with a gold E necklace with a diamond on the tip of the E. And I remember... Are you joking me? That necklace? No, that, was, that oh, wasn't oh, it. Oh, I was going to say so, like, no. oh, that. And it was, a, it was an italicised E with a gold, yeah. with a diamond on it. And my sister got an R with a diamond on it. Mm. And I remember... I was so excited. I just thought, you know, they sent us... And my mum said to me, because she was sort of very actressy and stuff, but she was always very concerned about how things looked. And I remember her saying, darling, when you do your... What happened in my holidays, diary, don't write James Coburn bought me a diamond necklace. It looks a bit showy. I thought, okay, mum. <laughs> so, so anyway, so they bought me this diamond necklace and then I was so proud of it and excited. But what will happen if you give a gold necklace with a diamond on it to a seven-year-old is that they Mm -hmm. will lose it especially Mm -hmm. with my parents (laughs) so I lost it and what was so lovely in some ways that necklace again it represented my childhood it represented a time in my life before things Mm -hmm. got a bit dark quite honestly and we were happy as a family and the fun side of my childhood which was the sort of glamorous exciting Mm -hmm. side of it and getting to meet sort of Uncle James and Lindsay. And anyway, Lindsay introduced me to Jane Goldman, who's now my best friend. She with... had the important thing. You didn't lose the important thing, which is a, which is the best friend. Oh, that makes me cry. That actually just, just loved it, isn't it? You kind of replaced it. But... So what happened is, because I met Jane, Lindsay said, oh, my friend's got a daughter. You should meet her. And then, of course, she, she knocked on my door. She was so confident. She went, hi, do you want to hang out? Hang out? Who says that? She's quite American, like kids from fame. <laughs> So we became friends. And so we've been friends, you know, with the family ever since. But for my last birthday, she got me that, Jane. And it was weird. I put it on. I thought, oh, how nice a gold E necklace. And it was only after a few minutes I realised what she'd done, which is she'd recreated the... It's the necklace that I got from Lindsay and James all those years ago. So it makes me think of Jane. And I know with your jewellery, Alex, which, can I just say, 
I adore this man's jewellery. And I'm wearing his heart today. I call it his Victorian heart. I think your jewellery feels like... A bit of nostalgia. Yeah. It's really intricate and it makes me really happy, this heart. I love wearing yeah. it. And I do like it. Oh, well, that's very sweet. Thank you for wearing it. Well, it's so beautiful. And do you know how I got to discover your jewellery was... We all knew about the bee. The bee was your sort of Elizabeth Hurley, that dress. Yes. Okay? Everyone bought the Alex Munro bee. Roughly, we're talking mm. 20, 2010, 10, maybe. Probably. So I've been really selling lots in Japan and America. So all my career has been in Japan and America. And it was great. And I was earning loads of money and stuff. And we never really sold in the UK. So to, Why was so, that? Well, because I made... Like the necklace you've got on now, um, delicate, very British, but also, you know, there's an element of myself had a little bit of tongue in cheek in it as well. And Japanese American loved that view of Britishness that was just so popular in those places. And it was great. And I was earning well, and, you know, we were making as much jewelry as we could. But uh, yeah, the B was my kind of like, I must make some jewelry for the British market. So that's why. That and how did the bee take off? Did Sienna Miller wear it, it was, it somewhere? So it was really funny because I, I made it a collection called Original Sin. I wanted it to be a little bit saucier and there were sort of apples and snakes and, you know, it's a bit more voluptuous. I do think jewellery should also be a little bit sexy. So mm. the weight it, on, on, on a woman's chest and, the, you know, so the way it sits, I, I think just looks, there's something a little bit voluptuous about it as well. Yeah. But I made it and I went to Paris Fashion Week and I laid out the collection and the bee was star character. And then at, at nine o'clock in the morning on the first day, my Japanese clients used to rush to get there first because we'd have a queue on the stand. And the first lot of wholesalers came along. They sort of looked there a bit. <laughs> one of them picked the bee up and she turned it over and she literally screamed and threw it down. And they were like, oh, I've never seen disgust. And I thought, oh my God, you know, Bankruptcy. What what happened like that? It's going to happen to me because this is I've invested everything in the show and the collection as you do each season. Yeah. You know you have to make things work. And did, why didn't they like the bit? It had legs. It was just too lifelike, and it wasn't it wasn't what they were after. So it was it was really weird. I thought, oh my god, this could be the end of me. This collection, mm. but it was Sienna Miller who. That's it. I remember. But I think yeah. she did a, like a G.I. Joe film yeah. and then she was in Vogue, she did a world tour and then um, Sophie Dahl, you know, and it started to appear on the cover of Vogue in, in lots of countries. It grew very organically, didn't it? it the ambassadors, like, like, yeah. Oh and I think that's a good general life lesson that you say, I thought it was going to be the end of me. Now, to me, that generally is something that precedes every success story I've ever heard. I thought it was going to be the oh, end of me. Really interesting. You know, it's, it's uh, go big or go home, isn't it? It's like your boldest decisions are the ones that have the greatest rewards. It's funny because I don't think anyone would associate sort of boldness with me and my work because it's very strong signatures. It always looks the same. So I think people would always think that I hadn't sort of done things differently or taken risks so um there's the reason that rom-coms have that trajectory or any movie star wars has that mm, which is mm. all must seem lost mm. in order for you to properly triumph mm. you know it can't just be plain sailing but I, for me that's what life's been like like you know it's just been these series of oh my god it's the end of everything and then um few we managed to scrape <laughs> I suppose in some ways, now that I'm a little bit older and the, and the business is working a bit better, is that is it's not quite so precarious. And that's a bit of a challenge for me in itself because yeah. I've been used to living on that precariousness. Your jewellery I love because and love because I bought the heart 
I think I'd got my book deal and I turned mm. a really difficult mm. time in my life into something positive, which was I was writing about mm. it and suddenly had a bit of cash. I just came here and bought myself jewellery. So I thought, I can do this. I can afford it. And I think that's lovely about your jewellery. I think it's jewellery that women can buy for themselves. It doesn't feel passive. Like, I've got to wait for a man to buy me. That was like, no, fuck that. I, I bought that. the heart. I came in. I, I bought it. the sun, you know, with the... Yeah. I bought three. I bought three necklaces oh, for us. Oh, that's so yeah. nice. Because that's my conflict with jewellery is that, uh, particularly with wedding and engagement jewellery, is that there is a side to it that can be proprietorial. Yeah. And actually, I would love to podcast someone like Amal Clooney yeah. and say, what the hell? That ring costs £600,000. What does that mean? Because if someone puts a diamond that's as big as your eyeball mm. on your finger, is there an element that they now claim Yeah, the ownership, ownership thing, of yeah. And it really worries me. So the, the rings that we do, we, we just don't have any track with any of that. Um, well, it's that slight, and I won't name any names, but it is a bit premiership footballer. Oh dear, I've been caught with a, in, a, in a hotel yeah, room with a woman. Yeah. I've got to buy her some jewellery. Yeah. There's something really wholesome about your jewellery. Because like I say, I think it's it felt, felt like a brand that women can walk in here and think, I deserve that. That's so kind say. We're mostly women. We make jewellery mostly for women. You know, I'm keen to be non-gender specific. But, I know. But there's more of a sort of female vibe behind what we do, um, which is something which gets me in trouble because I'm not very, um, you know, occasionally when the football's on or I go to the pub with a load of blokes, I do struggle a little bit. And I sort of, <laughs> I sort of see a table of women. I think, oh, God, they're, but they're gossiping about Love Island. I've got to go to join them. Yeah, rather, rather than, anyway. Anyway, we should Let's talk about the last one. Come on. Okay, so this is called uh, St. Christopher's. St. Christopher, patron saint of travellers. Mm. Now, your generation, Connie, you're not quite so big on the old patron saint. I suspect you don't even know who Aesop is in his fables. We've got Aesop moisturiser. That, that, that <laughs> one's in there, don't you? But it's very much the St. Christopher's. I don't know, Alex. Do you know why people? I mean, it was just a more of a tradition it, thing that it people was the wore patron, it. I, I think it was because. So I did a collection based on. Well, there was a great exhibition, and it was about objects that people gave mariners and tattoos and things. So uh, it was great jewelry. But the swallow, for example, would return each year. So if you either gave someone a swallow or had a swallow tattoo it sort of meant I'll be back in a year and it, it, it was safe passage and certainly in my day when young people grew up and then they'd go off to university or, or you'd go travelling you just wouldn't hear from them or, or see for, for a year it you was know. great if you went on travelling <laughs> you were gone and St Christopher was a, was a little stay safe yeah. while you're out of touch and the, the image on St Christopher is always him with a staff and someone on his back and he's taking them across oh, yeah. a, a fording a stream yeah, and the stream was the rough water, and it was safe passage over rough times. And um, I, I think jewelry, because people would go away and you'd lose touch with them, jewelry had much more significance and meaning. In, yeah, it was in, your in, memento. In, yeah. It was your kit. You're absolutely right mm. for safety on yeah for life's journey essentially. Yeah, and I, life. my mum always wore this. And after my sister died, my mum died not that long afterwards. She got motor neurone disease and. 
I think the stress of my sister's death, it just, it finished her, you know. And she was such a, sounds similar to your mum, Alex, like this kind of, you know, she was always, even though at that age she was still, you know, glass of champagne, silk cup, yeah. dancing yeah. to James Brown. You know, she's a very youthful woman, quite sort of Parisian in spirit. She yeah. had that. And I think it just broke her. She never really recovered from my sister dying. Anyway, she got motor neuron disease and dealt with the diagnosis in a fabulous way, you know. I think for her, she just, she wanted to hasten everything. Mm. She would say, can't we go to Switzerland? And I said, this is a lot of lengths to go to to get a mini break in Switzerland. (laughs) (laughs) She just wanted to go. On that note, Mm. I asked my mother, who is 90, I said, what's the one thing that Mm. would make you happiest in life and she said a little i just love a little pill on my bedside yeah. table so i don't want to take it i just yeah. want to know it's there i want to know it's there so i, I think there's you know I'm, i i think there's a lot to be said about giving yeah. you a choice i um, do in, and can i just time. say i didn't finish my mum off by the way but <laughs> <laughs> actually you wanted me to i happily would have done so you it went to Switzerland. <laughs> <laughs> Alex, you said you me. weren't going to mention that <laughs> Came out with a great necklace. This podcast is more than my So anyway, but she one of the things when she was in the the hospice, and it was the night before she died actually, and she kept pointing. She could barely speak at that point, and she was pointing to her handbag. That was it. She'd taken the necklace off, and she kept pointing, and I was getting things out, and I was getting her makeup out. She was going no, and then eventually I found this. It was her necklace, her St Christopher's, and she raised her thumbs which always made me laugh as a sort of like Paul McCartney at a photo call, like the cheesy gesture. And I thought, oh, and I said, oh, do you want me to put it on you? And I went to put it on her and she went, no, and she pushed it back to me. And it was a really symbolic, so I thought, oh, she knows she's dying, but she's saying, I want you to have it. And I haven't taken it off since that day. Even when they make me do sort of salt scrub, they make me do salt, salt scrub <laughs> massages. It's awful life. My yeah, salt scrub uh, massage helps. That's working for me. I say, no, I keep this on. So again, it's got so much sentimental value. So the pieces that I've chosen all have that. And like I say, even my Alex Munro jewellery, what that means to me is about me being kind to myself. It's you know? really funny because it's not funny, haha, sorry. It, it, <laughs> you've got amazing, beautiful sister. In the three pieces, you've got this incredible woman that I would have loved to have met your mother. <laughs> and you've got your Bezzy, who mm. just sounds brilliant. And then you've just added on, and also me. And I think that's really important because mm. it's great to have those other people, but you've got to have yourself as well and be yeah. kind to yourself. And so you've got everyone there. All women. I know. No offence, Alex. No, I'm, I'm a woman kind of a guy. I love men, but I just men. think for jewellery... It's really interesting that for me, those women have really shaped me and mm. those women have had such, as you say, a big impact. But I love what you say about the heart because I never thought of that. And it's about being kind to yourself and you don't need to wait for anything. You don't mm. need to wait to buy a house. You don't need to, if you want to marry someone, ask them. If mm. you want to buy yourself a ring, buy it. Mm. Women spent a long time in abeyance just waiting thinking they had to be picked oh or chosen. Gosh, and as a teenager, waiting for a bloody phone call. Like, what the hell? I mean, this is life lesson for you. I know. <clears throat> I never I never used my phone. I never waited for But it. as a woman of your... Um, Generation I'm interested. Obviously, your dad's a very famous jewellery designer, but would you buy yourself jewellery? It doesn't seem like a weird thing to you. I mean, I guess I'm rubbish at buying anything for myself. I, I don't do it. All of my clothes are secondhand. Out of this entire outfit, it's maybe this watch I bought, and the rest has just been handed to me, even the socks. 
That's great. You're so environmentally sound. I love your generation. Well, I just, I never, I'm not very good at, I wouldn't go to the shops and never buy myself anything. Like makeup or anything. You need to buy more for your dog livery, don't you? That's, you know, oh, like any treats going is for the livery. Oh, she's yeah. so cute. Look, oh, she's oh, a cute she's like, she's like my first oh, grandchild, livery. A special girl. Why are you I haven't done a dog collection. And, and come <gasps> People here think, oh no, a little bit too cute. No, that's Alex, like you've dogs. got to. I would yeah. love to. I will single handedly. That is good. Oh my God, you've got to. I know, it's really so fun. But I think that would actually do really well because the amount of people I found as London's uh, leading expert on death and dogs, I'm often in a situation <laughs> where I have to buy sort of dog related stuff for people. Mm. Probably because they're expected of me and also it's, mm. it's, it's brand friendly. The majority of dog jewelry is gross. It's so naff. It's all sort of italicised and like, you know. The last nice piece of dog jewellery was Agatha did some Scotty dog pendants in the, like, 90s. Oh, they were so oh. nice. It was a, I think, um, like a Lucky Charm bracelet with dogs mm. on it it had. Mm. And it felt witty. Mm. It feels a bit well, overly sentimental, most dog jewellery. Oh my God, I'm so obsessed by this dog. You don't understand. It's, uh, it's my green dog. Can I take one on this one? Um, on this yeah, why don't we do oh, one? Can you share? Can you share? We'll share because I'll do it for my Instagram as well. Should we get someone to take it for three We'll go us. down to the shop. Okay. We'll, well, I'm going to stop <laughs> this recording now. You'll see a tomato. I'm going to stop. Are we okay? I'm going to press. Yeah, yeah. We, yeah. Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you'd like to see some of the pieces we've been talking about, please check out our website and follow the links to the podcast page. You'll also find information on how to share your own stories, give a bit of feedback, or have a look at all the jewellery-related things I've been up to recently. We've also got some great jewellery-making tutorials on our YouTube channel. There's lots to see. Just go to www.alexmonroe.com.